We're going to be looking at Philippians first, uh, Philippians chapters 1 and 2. I want to key in on two things. Firstly, I want to key in on what, what you would call Pauline Christology. Your Christology is a technical term for how you view the Messiah, uh, what you believe about him, um, how you relate to him. I, I suppose the Hebraic equivalent would be what? Uh, messiology or maybe Mashiachology, something like that. So we're going to be looking spe- specifically at Pauline Christology. I guess maybe the Hebraic equivalent would be like a sh- sh- Shaolin Mashiachology. All right. So, um, and I'm, I'm excited about this. When we, when we just look at Yeshua together over the Word, we see His glory, we fall more in love with Him, He captures our hearts, and uh, He brings us to life. Um, in my opinion, we can never have too high a Christology. We can never think highly enough about Yeshua, because He is so exalted. Uh, the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation is about Him. It exalts Him. The Holy Spirit exalts Yeshua. So we're going to have a look at this together. Uh, firstly, in, and one question specifically I'm going to be tackling is sometimes, you know, people question this whole nature of, the nature of divinity. You know, it says that, that God is one, Elohim is Echad, and then, and then there's Yeshua, the, you know, Yeshua the Son and the Father. And uh, sometimes there's this question, is it safe to call Yeshua God? Is it okay to worship Him? And, uh, I mean, historically in the body of Christ, People have had no problem with that. Uh, Sometimes in the Messianic community, it's more of a question because sometimes people in the Messianic community are coming from different churches and they feel a little theologically disoriented. They're, They're not sure what to believe anymore. So, you know, the best solution to that is just read the Word, spend a lot of time in the Word, and let the Holy Spirit teach you. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 Paul says, I will rejoice, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Yeshua the Messiah. So what does he call the Spirit of God there? The Spirit of Yeshua the Messiah. Uh, That's right. That's key. The Holy Spirit is Yeshua's Spirit. All right? Uh, let's, there are a couple more verses. I'll just, I'll just mention them to you. You don't have to turn to these references. But in Luke's travel journal, there's one place where they're seeking direction about where to go next. And they see that the spirit of Yeshua barred us from going into Asia Minor and wrote to the metropolis of Ephesus. So there he calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of Yeshua. All right. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that the first Adam became a living soul and the last Adam, who is the Messiah, became a life-giving spirit. So get that. Yeshua is the life-giving spirit. Now, I love the fact that Yeshua is life-giving, you know, and how he relates to his bride and how he does everything. He's life-giving. Um, but that's key. The Holy Spirit, the life-giving spirit of God, his name is Yeshua. You could almost say that based on, based on um, Paul's understanding. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, The Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And you know the Greek word there is kurios. It could be a reference to God as the Lord is Adonai, or it could be a reference to Yeshua as the Master. Whatever the case may be, it either means God is the Spirit as the Lord, or Yeshua is the Spirit. Either way, can you see there's this unity God is, uh, what did Yeshua say in John chapter 4? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, right? So get that. God is spirit. I don't know if you can say that's what he's composed of. That is what he is. 
So God is the Spirit. And here I've just given you quite a few references throughout the apostolic scriptures saying that Yeshua is the Spirit also. If you're able to figure that out with your brain, tell me after how you did that. Because frankly, to me, it's a bit of a mystery. But what it tells me is that Yeshua and the Father are very close. They're, they're echad, like he said, they're one in John chapter 10. Um, not that they're the same person, but there's such a deep unity between the Father and the Son. Um, so that's, that's one thing I wanted to, to point out to you. When it comes to, Christ, when it comes to our mess- messiology, what we believe about Messiah, Yeshua is the life-giving Spirit. He is, the Holy Spirit is His Spirit. Right? So let's, uh, let's look at uh, chapter 2 now. I love chapter 2 also. Um, there's some very practical things in here we're going to look at in a moment, but I just want to look at what it has to say about our Master first. Uh, in Philippians 2.5, and then on into verse 6, it says, Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't require equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So did you notice that? Yeshua existed in the form of God. Point number one. Uh, point number two. Hmm, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's look at a couple translations here. What does, the, what does this next phrase mean? It says, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I hear, have here in my handy New Testament from 26 translations. It has some, some um, different understandings of this passage in different, uh, different translations. Uh, I'll read you a couple of these and we can, we can dig in together. Okay, so where it says, um, okay, the King James says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Um, Knox has it, did not reckon equality with God, something to be forcibly retained. Or that's, sorry, that's M-O-N, whatever that stands for. Knox has it, and yet he did not see, in the rank of God had a prize to be coveted. Um, Another renders this as, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. Uh, TCNT renders it, yet he did not look upon equality with God as above all things to be clung to. So the idea there is, the master, he existed with the father before creation, like before, the, before time, before the outside of time. Uh, he existed in the form of God. And according to this passage, he didn't hold on to being equal with God. He didn't see that as something to be held on to. What that tells us, though, is that was his status. Now, to balance that, oh, well, you know, okay, here, here's something. In the, in the Gospel of John, there was a point where everybody started picking up stones and they were going to throw them right at Yeshua's head and try and kill him because they understood from what he was saying that he was making himself out to be equal with God. Interestingly enough, he never refuted that. He didn't say, no guys, that was not what I was saying. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. That's a smasher of a statement for a man to make. But he said that and it's true. Um, So... You know, uh, to, to balance that thought, we also know that Yeshua said, um, the Son can do nothing except what he sees the Father doing. The Son can do nothing of himself. Uh, you know, Yeshua, even though there was an equality there, from what I can understand, Yeshua was submitted to his Father wholeheartedly, willingly. He was under his Father's authority. So it's interesting that even though there was an equality, at the same time, there was also something of a hierarchy in terms of an authority structure. Even in, the, even in the Godhead, there's an authority structure. 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and it's a relational one. It's love-based, but it's there. Um, so let's just take note of that. Um, point three. I'm going to read to you a little passage from the book of Isaiah, Yeshayahu, uh, chapter 45. Oh, I love, I love these chapters. I, I could just read you like a couple of chapters straight, but I'll just read you a couple of, a couple of verses. At uh, the end of Isaiah 45, he says, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Everybody say no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me, this is God speaking, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only, everybody say only, only in Yahweh, in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Right? So can, this is a passage establishing the exclusivity of God as a Savior and of God as a, uh, what else does it say there? Savior and righteousness, a source of righteousness and strength. And what else does he say? This is like, here's, here's like, uh, you know, like uh, trailers for movies. Uh, this verse here is a trailer for the future global reality. When the ultimate king comes back, and he sits on the throne of David. This is like a trailer for that. He says in Isaiah, there's going to be a point when every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue is going to confess to him. Now, um, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 to 25 is, is, is that passage, all right? So that's in the prophets. That's, a, that's from the, the prophets of Israel. Uh, Paul took hold of this verse and he actually quoted it a couple of times in his letters. In uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, he references this verse. And there he says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So he quotes this passage and he references it to when each of us appears before the bima, the judgment seat of God. All right? Now, in Philippians 2, he also quotes this passage. Let's see what he says there. He says in verse 10, At the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess. Did you notice that? He's quoting Isaiah. In Isaiah, God says, Every knee is going to bow to me, every tongue is going to confess to me. Paul says in Philippians 2, he, he doesn't change the passage, but he correctly interprets it. He says specifically, every knee is going to bow to Yeshua and every tongue is going to confess to him. Bowing the knee to someone is a, it's a very significant act. It involves a total submission. It involves doing homage. Uh, it's often an act of worship. The very Hebrew word to worship, like lehishtachavot, it means to like bow yourself down. It, it, it by definition involves bending the knee. All right? That's what, that's, that is a picture of the future global reality. Either you're going to bow the knee to Yeshua, or you're dead. Like, you're not going to be around, right? So, get ready, planet Earth, eh? Um, let's look at that passage a little bit more. In, in the verse before that, in uh, Philippians 2.9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him. So Yeshua is not just exalted, he's highly exalted. So when I talk about having a high Christology, you have a really high Christology, is what I get from that passage. Um, and bestowed on him the name 
which is above every name. Let me ask you, what is the name that is above every other name? It, could it be yod heh Could it be the name of God? I, I believe that that's what that passage is talking about. You know, to call him Adonai Yeshua is, is safe, theologically. And uh, let's, let's continue looking at this and see if that, if that bears out. In verse 11... Okay, so he talks about every knee bowing in verse 10. In verse 11, he says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as how it has it in my New American Standard Bible, to the glory of God the Father. Yeshua the Messiah is Lord. Okay? Now, this is based on the Greek word kurios. Everybody say kurios. Here's the challenge. In the Greek, kurios can mean master or sir, or it can mean Adonai. It can mean the name of God. So it's really tough sometimes. Like, is he talking about Adonai, the name of God? Or is he talking about Yeshua is the master? He's the boss. He's the one who calls the shots, right? That's the question. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a perspective on this from um, David Stern's translation and also from an early Semitic uh, version of the New Testament. Have you guys met David Stern in Israel? No? Okay. Um, David Stern, uh, pioneer Messianic Jew, he lives in Jerusalem, he, he did the complete Jewish Bible that we often read from. Um, in, uh, here, here's, his, um, here's his commentary on Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai, Greek kurios. As explained at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the Greek word kurios can mean any fr- anything from the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name of God, um, to Lord in the human sense, to merely sir, a respectful form of address. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in Hebrew, you would say Adon or Adoni, to someone for sir, right? Um, because Isaiah 45.23, that's the verse we just looked at, Isaiah 45.23, which in its own context applies to Yahweh, is quoted in verse 10 in reference to Yeshua, I believe this verse teaches that Yeshua the Messiah is Yahweh and not only Lord in a lesser sense. So that's, uh, that's uh, David Stern's perspective. Uh, he's, he's a Messianic Jewish theologian that I, I highly respect. Um, here's another interesting perspective. I, I, I have here like a, a copy of the New Testament in Aramaic. Now, the Western branches of Christianity have always had the Greek New Testament. Uh, the eastern branches of, of Christianity, however, have always read from the Aramaic New Testament. Aramaic is a very close cousin to Yeshua. If you saw the Passion of the Christ, then you heard some Aramaic in there. Uh, in, in, in Aramaic, Yeshua is called Yeshua. Right? Um, so, you know, the Western Roman-based Christianity will say, well, the Greek is the original. The eastern branches of Christianity say the Aramaic is the original. Whatever the case may be, they're both very early. So, you know, sometimes you can read the Aramaic New Testament and get a fuller understanding of things. I'm not going to say whether I think it's the original or not, but it's definitely very early and, uh, and it's historic. So let's, let's have a look at the Aramaic New Testament and uh, see what it has to say, how, how, how it renders this passage. Um, I, I love this, I love this uh, version. It has like the Aramaic in Hebrew letters on the right and then it has a modern Hebrew translation on the left. So... Tell you what, I'll even, I'll even give a shot at reading Aramaic and Hebrew letters. How does that sound? Don't criticize me for it, though. Yeah? Because you, have you, you, yeah. Okay, here, I'll, tell me if I'm reading it right. Um, okay. V'chol ishan navdeh 
דמוריה הוא ישוע משיחה לשובך דאללה אבוהי. Does that sound like Aramaic to you? <laughs> okay, here, here's, how, here's how the translation has it. V'chol lashon, todeh, ki, and then it has the name of God, Yod Hivavhe, hu Yeshua ha-Mashiach, l'chvod ha-Elohim aviv. So, um, the Aramaic has, um, okay, like in the Aramaic uh, Old Testament, the, you know, the Aramaic Tanakh, um, where they have the name of God, they have Maria. Maria is like Adonia. It's like a, I don't know, kind of like, yeah. So do you, do you understand that? Where it says Maria in the Aramaic, that's the name of God. In, now, there is another word in Aramaic, in the Aramaic New Testament for Yeshua, and that's the word Maran. Everybody say Maran. Maran means our master. Uh, you remember the phrase Maranatha? That word is two words. Maran, Atha. So Maran is our master, our Lord. Atha is, may he come, or he is coming, right? Okay, so usually, if you're talking about, like, uh, our master, then he would be Maran. But here, he's called Maria, which is the name of God. That's very significant. That in the Aramaic New Testament, it says that, in, eventually, everybody's conf- going to confess that Yeshua the Mashiach is, he's God. He's Adonai. That's huge. And, um, you know, the, uh, this translation in modern Hebrew has that understanding also. So, doesn't that make you just want to fall on your face and, like, confess to his name? Like, wow. And, and, and you'll notice here that that name was bestowed on Yeshua by the Father. So, you know, you still have the overarching authority of the Father and, and, and the Father's greatness, but he definitely shared that greatness with Yeshua. Yeah. All right. So just, just to clarify, like I already said, you know, in saying that, I'm not saying Yeshua is the Father. Um, Yeshua said the Father is greater than I at one point. So I want to affirm that also. Okay, the, re- the reason I'm taking some time to go over this is because historically speaking, like a low Christology has usually been the source of heresies in the, in the Christian community in the body of Messiah. Often, if people begin to get wonky and get weird doctrine and get really bad attitudes and start adopting doctrines of demons, whatever they may be, it usually involves having a low Christology. Yeshua gets ignored, Yeshua gets sidelined, he just gets lost in the mix, and uh, before you know it, he's not the center of things. And uh, the, the Bible doesn't make sense if Yeshua isn't the center of things. So that's, that's why this is important to me. I'll give you an example. Jehovah's Witnesses. How many of you ever talked with a Jehovah's Witness about whether Yeshua is God or not? If you've ever like, engaged a Jehovah's Witness in conversation, it will not take very long before they'll... It's like an obsession with Jehovah's Witness. Yeshua is not God. Jesus isn't God, right? It, let me ask you. If, like, if, if heresies like Jehovah's Witnesses are obsessed with denying the deity of Yeshua, that should give us pause to stop and think. Yeah. So anyway, just, just take note of that. Here's, um, in, in my world, the deity of Yeshua is a hill worth dying on. The deity of Yeshua is non-negotiable. Uh, to deny the deity of Yeshua is heresy, historically speaking, in the body of Messiah. Um, the deity of Yeshua is a defining line between orthodox messianic faith 
and heretical movements that have become distracted from a simple devotion to the master and that will ultimately slide into oblivion, either as whacked out cults or as faded memories that assimilate into non-Messianic Judaism. Does that make sense? Um, I'll give you an example. How many of you heard of the Sabbatarians of Transylvania? Okay, Transylvania, I think, for most, sums up like some scary movie that I never watched. But anyway, um, Transylvania, was a, it was a region in Europe, and in the 1600s, there was a Hebrew roots movement there. People were starting to celebrate Shabbat, and they were connecting with the Jewish roots of the faith. Some of them were even learning some Hebrew prayers, and it was a great thing. You know, the Reformers hated it. It was just getting a little too close to the original, I think, I don't know, a little too far away from having a Rome-centered uh, praxis, I don't know. But whatever the case may be, these guys were doing great until the, their main leader, or the guy who inspired them, and there were, there were tens of thousands of them, he died. And another guy took over, and this guy began steering their whole movement in the direction of Yeshua isn't God, and uh, Yeshua is no longer a center of things, and they began to adopt a more rabbinic approach to the Torah. Um, I have nothing wrong with rabbinic stuff as long as it stays true to scripture, right? But I mean like extra-biblical rabbinic approach. And uh, within a century, that movement had died out. Um, Some of them assimilated into non-Messianic Orthodox Judaism. Uh, Some of them were just persecuted out of existence. But you know what? That was a historic lesson to us to always keep Yeshua central and to defend uh, the doctrine of of, of his deity. You know, not based on just what we think. Just go to the Bible. Um, if, if you're ever discussing this with a person and they're like, yeah, you know, Yeshua can't be God. It's not possible. I don't worship Yeshua. That's idolatry or whatever. Ask them when the last time they read through the New Testament was. The whole New Testament. Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just like, I'm not stating that this is the case, but I am kind of stereotyping because what I've, what I've discovered is when people quit reading the writings of Yeshua's apostles, and they don't spend a lot of time in the New Testament, they will begin to drift from the Master, they will lose their focus on Him, and before long you're going to start questioning whether He's God or not, whether He deserves a lot of attention, He just kind of gets sidelined. Right? So you don't have to deny Yeshua to be in big trouble, you just have to kind of get distracted from Him or ignore Him. So I, I leave that to you. If you're in conversation with someone about this, just ask them when the last time they read through Matthew to Revelation was, and encourage them to do that. The, the other reason this is important is because Yeshua is the truth, and we cannot comprehend the truth outside of him. He's our groom. We're in love with him. It's all about him, right? And we want to know him. So you know what? If Yeshua is God, then we need to know him like that, and we need to acknowledge him like that. Are we going to be making up our own version of him? And that's called idolatry, and it's kind of scary, right? So I really wanted to hit that hard with you guys. Um, okay, next, uh, next thing I want to draw out in Philippians is uh, some things. It's about Yeshua as our groom. Yeshua is our bridegroom. Uh, he has betrothed us to himself. If you look at that last Seder, it was kind of like a Jewish betrothal in some ways. He gave us the cup. We drank from the, cru- the cup. Um, he went to prepare a place, and he's coming back for the biggest Jewish wedding in history. <laughs> if you could put it like that. Um, so, you know, in that regard, this passage applies to all of us. Um, but it also applies on a very practical level to those of us who are husbands. I want to I I look at that. Um, I'm a young husband. I haven't even been married for four years, so I don't feel entirely qualified to speak about this, but 
I'm learning, I'm in process, so I want to share with you some of the things that I've been learning about being a husband. And uh, again, you know, as we talk about this, it doesn't matter if you're a husband or not, it doesn't matter if you're married or not, because Yeshua is our husband, and we can learn about him as we look through this. So uh, let's do that. And I, you know, some of, some of you here, like, uh, like Willie, you said you've been married for 35 years, right? And Wayne, how, how long have you and Sharon been married for? 45. 45. And Herb and Vicky, how long have you been married for? Huh? 43. Okay, so like you guys, you have been married for literally over 10 times what Genevieve and I have been married. So like, I, I have such a high regard for you. I admire you. You know, we look at your marriages and we, we're just, we're blessed to see that, you know. So I'll just share with you as a friend some of the things that I've been learning. And I don't know, maybe it will encourage you too. Uh, we have a lot of people on our live stream today, so maybe some of them will appreciate it too. Um, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse Three, we can begin there. And this applies to our relationships with each other in general. Don't do stuff out of selfishness or arrogance, you know, the ego thing. But uh, have a humble mind and look at everybody else as more important than you. I challenge you to do that. Look at everybody else as more important than you. Wow. That's the first thing. Do you think that could apply in marriage? I, I'm going to talk specifically about us as husbands because I, I believe that every marriage is a reflection of our marriage with Yeshua and Yeshua initiated the relationship that we have. We only loved him because he first loved us, right? So in my worldview, husbands are called to be initiators. They're called to be responsible for their marriages. Um, th- some of this can apply to wives too. It works better, you know, if uh, both people are, are focusing on this. So, uh, But I'm going to keen especially on husbands. Like, what does that look like when a husband regards his wife as more important than him? When you get up in the morning and you say, my wife's schedule, what she has to get done today, what she would like to do this evening, is more important than what I want to do. What does that look like, eh? Um, I'm still learning about this. I, you know, If I say like, yeah, I'm really doing all this stuff and I'm a great husband, I'd be a total hypocrite. I'm still learning. Um, but... Maybe that's why I want to share this, because I'm learning, you know. So um, we, can, we can ask that question. Um, he, he goes on in verse 4 to say, don't just look out for your own interests, but also for others' interests. So, you know, again, what does that look like for, for us as husbands to say, what is my wife interested in? What, what does he really enjoy? What are her hobbies? How can I learn more about that, right? What does it look like for her interests to be more important to me than my interests? Um, goes on to also say... Okay, actually, let's just stop there. Here, here, here's something that I've learned on a very practical level. On an action level, the best way to, to, uh, to actually implement that is to ask. So first thing in the morning, you're, you're making your plans for the day, you've got out your day timer. Before you just fill in your schedule and make your plans, ask your wife about her schedule and her plans. Ask her what she wants to do, and then... Only then make your plans for the day. So asking is huge. I'm, I'm learning about this, you know. I can, I can never just ask enough. Before, before I say, I want to do this, I can stop and I say, what do you want to do? Things like that, eh? So, and you know, this, this applies in every relationship. Um, and you know what? That's how Yeshua treats every one of us. Think about that. He's so humble. He, he's here to serve us. He says, like, he, just, he, he cares about what you want to do. Isn't that neat? And hopefully we can reflect that to him too. Um, 
Okay, then in verse 7. Okay, so Yeshua, like, if anybody was entitled to be treated in a certain way, it was the master. If anyone had rights, it was Yeshua. Don't you think? But look at what he did for his bride-to-be. It says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's Yeshua as the model husband that I aspire to become like. Let's, let's just break that down. Number one, he emptied himself. Uh, the footnote here in my, in my translation says, i.e., he laid aside his privileges. In other words, his rights. Yeshua had rights when he was in heaven. Uh, Yeshua had divine privileges. And you know what? He took it all and he laid it aside. You remember like at the last Seder, what did he do? He took off his garment, he laid it aside, and he washed the camel poop off of his disciples' feet. That's a humble thing. And that's what he did for the bride. Yeah. So what does that look like for me as a husband to, to lay aside my rights, to empty myself? Yeah. Something I've been, uh, the Father's really been challenging in my life is there are times when I'll get offended or I'll get mad and he'll say, why are you mad right now? Why are you offended? And ultimately it's because, well, I have rights. Well, I'm entitled to something and I didn't get it and I'm mad. I deserve this and it didn't happen. So I'm offended. So I, I, I challenge you with this. Next time you're mad or you're offended, let that still small voice say, why are you mad right now? What's the source of this? Could it be that there's a place where you could empty yourself, where you could lay, let down your rights, where you could become a servant? Ouch, eh? It's like, that's the time when I least want to lay, lay, lay down my rights. I, you know, when you're mad, like, you just, you come up fighting, right? Everything in you is like, I'm on, I'm on defense mode, and I am going to win this battle. And, you, and Yeshua's approach is, no, just let it go. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. I don't deserve anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then what does it say? He humbled himself. I know. I just kind of wonder, like, what does that look like for me as a husband to humble myself in my, in my marriage? What does that look like for every one of us to humble ourselves with our coworkers, uh, in community, etc.? So what does that look like in our relationships, hey? To humble ourselves to become a servant, to die, ouch. Everybody say ouch. <laughs> yeah. You can't say amen, say ouch, hey? <laughs> yeah, okay. There's just a couple little things here I'll, I'll point out to you about from this letter. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul recognizes and affirms the local leadership in that congregation. He says, To all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers, number one, and deacons, number two. So did you notice that? Um, everybody in Philippi, they were brothers and sisters. They, were, they had equality with each other. But there were a couple roles and job descriptions going on there. Um, overseers is basically like the leadership of a congregation. In other places, that term is used synonymously with elders. And their job description is to shepherd or to pastor, right? So overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor. It's all the same thing, essentially, in, in the New Testament. Uh, the other role was deacons. That's a Greek word. They didn't translate it. What does deacon mean? Like a servant. 
Basically, they were the administrators. Like, at this point, Wayne is really filling the role of a deacon in our congregation. Um, we've never really officially appointed him to that because I don't know that Wayne, his, his, his life dream was really to, to keep the books and do administrative stuff. But he's doing it for us right now. You know, he's kind of like our, uh, our acting deacon. And I want to give you a trustworthy statement that's deserving of full acceptance, to use, to use Paul's term. You can never thank, thank deacons and administrators enough. You know, they're the guys who are usually behind the scenes. They're doing the boring work. And they'll never, they'll, they're usually such humble guys, you know. So, you know, oh, you can never love your deacons enough. You can never thank them enough. So let's make sure that we just give Wayne, for instance, a lot of love for the administrative stuff he does, right? Now, Sharon especially. Sharon, I, we're probably not going to be, you know, showering kisses on your husband for what he does. But if you could do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. So... All right, great. So that's, that's, um, that's in verse 1 of this, of this letter. Um, in verse 1, verse 9, he says, You guys love each other so much, and I pray that you love each other even more. Isn't that cool? He says, I pray that your love would abound. And he said specifically, in what? Knowledge Yeah, in, in, in real knowledge and all discernment. Okay, I wonder if that isn't two keys to growing in love. Real knowledge. So when you get to know somebody better, you get to love them more, Right? being real with each other, developing friendships. Um, I think that can also mean our knowledge of the truth. When we know the truth, when we practice the truth, we're going to grow in our love for each other. In Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua said in the end of days, a lot of people's love is going to get cold because lawlessness will increase. So can you, can you see those two things contrasted? Lawlessness, just being loose and, you know, whatever about the truth. But when we were passionate about the truth, when we love the law of God and apply it, our, our, that, that fire of his life will grow in us. So isn't, I, I like that. Real knowledge and all discernment. It's like, uh, it's like the launch pad of a, of a godly love. In 2 verse 2, he says, um, man, he, he like challenges these guys to, quote, be of the same mind, Maintain the same love, have a united spirit, intent on one purpose. That's like massive unity, hey? Like seriously, as human beings, that's impossible. It is simply impossible outside of like God totally changing us, right? So I mean, hey, we're not going to pretend. We're not going to like, you know, some people, they have this external unity where it's like, okay, if we can get everybody into the same building once a year, then we're unified. I don't think that's what it's talking about, you know? When we're tight with Yeshua, we're going to be tight with each other. It's just the way it is. You know, when he's the one living in us, he's living in all of us. And we just move together. And you know what? We'll have differences. We'll have disagreements. That's cool. We'll work through them. I think, I think the question is, do we want it? You know, ultimately, do we want to be tight with each other? Do we want to be one? Because if we do, we'll work through stuff. You know, we'll ask the Father for it regularly. I, I, I asked Abba probably, I think, like pretty much every time we drive to PA on Shabbat, I'm like, Father, I pray that you give us a supernatural unity. You know, give us one mind, stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I hope that for all of us we can do that. What do you guys think? Can we be praying for that regularly? Yeah. Because in John 17, Yeshua said, our unity is going to be what proves to the world that God sent Yeshua as the Messiah. Like there's something about unity that floors people. They're like, wow, that is abnormal. That's got to be God, eh? So, I mean, I don't know. There, there are people in every area who kind of go under the term messianic and they are totally separatistic and they want nothing to do with other messianic people or the body of Messiah. That grieves me. Honestly, it really does. Because people like that don't want unity. 
The question is, do you want it? If you want it, you'll, you'll value it, you'll work towards it, you'll pray for it. If someone isn't praying for unity, if it's not something that they want and they're working towards, if they call themselves messianic, I, I would even suggest you may not be messianic. Because being messianic means we're all about Messiah. Messiah is all about his body. He's all about us as a body of believers. And that includes more than just messianic people, duh, right? It's like messianic and Christian people. We're like one body, right? Um, some people will say, well, I'm Torah observant, and therefore I can't have anything to do with anybody, because no one is as righteous as me, basically. Oh, seriously, like, in every area you have people that are like that. I suggest that those people are not Torah observant, because the Torah was given to the community of Israel. The greatest commandment in the Torah, after loving God, is loving each other. And you can't love each other without, like, getting together, right? It's like, I really like Genevieve, so I really like spending time with her. So... You know, that doesn't immediately apply to us in this room because we're together, but this is a word for the broader messianic community. It's a, it's a word for the body Messiah. Yeah. It, you know, again, it just comes down to, do you want it? If you, if you want it, you'll, you'll go for it and it'll happen. What does it say? Like, uh, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah. Um, in 2 verse 13... Paul says, oh, I love this verse. This is the verse that got me going more than any other verse. Um, he says, it's God who is at work in you, both to will, everybody say will, and to work for his good pleasure. Just think about this. You can actually bring pleasure to God. Wow. Can you believe that? And it's interesting that he's the one who's catalyzing that, hey? Like, he works in you and in me so that we'll want to bring him pleasure. And he also is the one who's, who's doing it in us so that we'll act in a, act in a way that'll bring him pleasure. I, I, I almost think maybe that's what divides people down the middle between one or another. You know, am I, is, are my desires and my actions for my own pleasure on a regular basis or are my desires and my actions for the pleasure of my creator? And I don't know, that just, it means so much to me. That like, I, as a little itty-bitty human being, I can actually bring pleasure to my Creator with what I want, with my desires, and with my actions. Wow. So every, every day when you wake up, before you even get out of bed, just stop and think about that. My desires today can bring my Creator pleasure. What I do today, I can bring Him pleasure. And choose that. That's the opposite of hedonism, right? Hedonism is... I live for myself and my own pleasures and gratification. I don't know. What is it to live for his pleasures and gratification? What would we call that? Devotion? Chasidut in Hebrew? It's probably like chasidut. It's devotion to him. Yeah. Um, Philippians 2.25, Paul uses military terminology. He calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. Isn't that cool? We Canadians, we are like such a non-military society. Really? How many of us have like almost ever seen a tank, even in Saskatchewan? Pretty rare. But like Paul, Paul saw himself as a soldier. I think it's a great analogy because we are in the middle of a massive war. We face battles on a regular basis as individuals, as congregations. Uh, in marriage, as a husband or wife, you will face spiritual battles. Uh, you could say that like in this room, we are, I don't know if we're special ops. I'd like to think that we're a special ops unit. So if you've seen any like um, any either like fictional or historical uh, war movies, look at those through the lens of that's you, and that is your fellow disciples in your community, and you are in the middle of a battle. 
Yeah. It's like, this ain't no country club. We are in a battle, you know? Yeah. It's a little bit of a difference between being in a country club and being in a special ops division of the military. <laughs> um, Philippians 2.29, this is the last thing we'll look at from Paul's letter. He says, um, with regards to Epaphroditus, receive him then in the master with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Um, Epaphroditus was a guy who devoted all of his time to serving uh, Messianic congregations. Uh, he lived to see the kingdom advance. There are people in the body of Messiah like that today. Something I found is that we have a tendency, if there's like a teacher or a pastor and we disagree with him on some theological point, uh, we're often prone to slam that person or to kind of write them off. Uh, we're certainly not, we don't, we don't have a propensity to hide that pe- person in high regard nonetheless. And, and I encourage you, even if there are people that you disagree with theologically, if they've devoted their lives to the kingdom Hold them in high regard anyway, is what Paul is saying. Uh, you know, even um, pastors in general. Pastors, are, pastors like, have a horrible job description. Seriously, I feel really sorry for pastors. Like, they're overworked, they're underpaid, and uh, they're not very popular in our culture today. And um, everybody hates them. <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, on that one. But, like, yeah, I even think of, like, the pastors here in Prince Albert. Like, you know, I'm part of the ministerial. I spend time with these guys regularly, and I have some significant theological differences with some of them. Really. But you know what? I look at those guys, and I say, there is a man who's been through a lot. There is a man who has dedicated his life to advancing the kingdom of God and serving the local body Messiah. And you know what? Regardless of whether I agree with him theologically, that's something to be honored. Yeah. So I, I encourage you, you know, develop a code of honor. Have a strong code of honor, even for people that you disagree with. Yeah, that's what I get out of, uh, out, of, out of Paul's letter there. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people, right? It just means it's possible to honor someone and st- still disagree with them. You know what? It's possible to honor someone and have to kick them out of your church because of church discipline. It is. It's possible to honor someone and declare them a heretic. I'm not saying we're going to go that far, right? That's, that's dangerous ground. But I'm saying, like, it's possible to honor everyone. Yeah. Um, let's look at the parasha for about seven, yeah, seven minutes here, and uh, then we're done. I, I love this parasha. It has a lot of practical applications. Uh, it's kind of like this uh, hodgepodge of, of a miscellaneous mitzvot, different commandments. So we'll just hit a couple of the practical ones because Yeshua said in Matthew 5 that if you want to be great in the kingdom, you take the mitzvot seriously. You do them, you influence other people to do them, eh? even the least of them. And there's some little commandments in here that just kind of slip under the radar very easily. So maybe we can hit a couple of these. Uh, he begins this parsha. he sets the tone by saying, be kedoshim, be holy people. Why? Because I am. And then he gives a bunch of practical outworkings of that. Uh, what we can get out of that is our behavior always flows out of our identity. And it's very important not to get the cart before the horse. Eh? Another way of saying that is like, what you do comes from who you are. How you see yourself. Your, uh, your self-image, perhaps you could say. Yeah. So, 
Remember that as you do the Torah. I, even, uh, I was having a discussion with someone on Facebook this last week. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's Messianic down in southern Saskatchewan, and uh, he has a lot of friends in different churches, and uh, he's, he's maintaining friendships with them, and I encur- I've been encouraging him to do that. And he says, you know, sometimes it's tough. They'll challenge me on stuff. Why are you doing the Sabbath on Saturday? Why do you do the dietary laws? And he was saying, you know, like, do we as Gentiles really, is there a point to us doing this? You know, is it worth it? And uh, how, how do I share my convictions with my friends? And I encouraged him, just go to Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2 is about identity. We talked about this last Shabbat, right? Or two Shabbats ago. Identity. When you, when you come to realize that you are part of greater Israel, when you, come to, when you have that self-image that you are a member of the covenants of God, including the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, you know what? Your behavior will flow out of that you'll begin to do, do some of the stuff from the Torah because it's part and parcel. So that's how he begins this parsha. Uh, he goes on to uh, reiterate two of the ten, uh, the top ten commands, shall we say. Uh, firstly, he says, reverence your mother and father and keep my Shabbats. Why did he choose those two out of the top ten? Uh, something notable is those are the two positive commandments out of the top ten. The other ones are negative. Don't do this, don't do that. These are the two positives, the only two. Honor your parents, do Shabbat. Some people will say, well, you know, Shabbat doesn't really matter because that's ceremonial law and uh, that's for Israel or that's done away with altogether. My question is, who, who are we to slice and dice the Ten Commandments? I mean, why is, why is the Sabbath the only supposed ceremonial commandment out of the top ten? Maybe honoring your parents is a ceremonial commandment too. Maybe don't murder is, or maybe they're all moral commandments. Could it be that Shabbat is actually a, a moral issue? Could it be? Why, why does it, why, here's another reason that I think he clumped those two together. They're very closely connected. Uh, something I've observed is when young people lose respect for their parents, one of the first things they do is they quit doing Shabbat. They quit spending time with the family on Friday evening to Saturday evening. It's like, I have my own life, I'm checking out. Um, that's a severe violation of the word of God. That's like thumbing, it's like thumbing, your, like thumbing your nose at the Almighty to do that, really. It scares me. Um, but maybe that's why. You know, on the positive side, when families celebrate Shabbat, it strengthens the family unit tremendously. You know, when a husband takes time to pray for his wife and bless her with the Proverbs 31 passage or whatever he wants to pray for her, you know, when a husband says the priestly blessing for his children, that is powerful. That enhances family life. Those children will grow in the respect for their parents. That's, that's what, I, that's what I, I, I see out of that. Um, there's another place in, a, in a 20 verse 9 where it says basically, curse your parents, you die. That's a capital punishment. That's, cal- like, that's, a, that's a capital offense in the theocracy of God. Now, listen, if like, okay, in our culture, in, in Canadian society, when kids cuss their parents out, they don't go to the electric chair or whatever, and we don't kill our children for that either because we live under Canadian law, okay? So you don't, you don't administer stuff like this on your own. That goes without saying, but just for the record, all right? Because some people are like, oh, you know, well, um, they're trying to write off the Torah and point out how irrational or unjust it is, so they say, well, we don't stone our children anymore, so, you know, well, my answer is there's a reason we don't. It's because we're not under a Torah-based um, theocracy, and uh, we're not going to be until Yeshua comes back, and you know what? We'll take it from there. We'll see what he wants to do. That'll be, uh, that'll be up to the master. But anyway, I want to give you some insight into this. The word there for cursing, cursing parents, it doesn't mean cussing them out. 
It means to make light of them. The root there is kalal, and it means to make light of, to not take very seriously. So um, you know, that's something to remember. Yeah. Um, okay, 19 verse 4, he says, don't turn to idols. This one hit me. Maybe that's the definition of an idol, what you turn to. You know, when you're stressed out, when you're going through a crisis, uh, when you're tired or whatever, what's the first thing you turn to? That could be an idol. Is the first thing you turn to him or do you go to something else? I'll give you, I'll give you an example from my life. Um, I'll get in the vehicle. First thing I'll turn to is the, the uh, radio dial. Flip, flip on the radio and just listen to some good music or whatever, right? But, you know, like lately the father's been like, I don't know why, you know, I, I kind of, I've just been inspired lately to just like get in the vehicle and turn to him first and be like, Abba, what do you want to do? What do you want to talk about while we drive, you know? And um, maybe there's something he wants to talk about. Um, or what would be some other things that we turn to? Chocolate? <laughs> uh, the bottle? <laughs> Tears it turns to the bottle, and that's okay when you're her age because it has milk in it. It's a little different when you're an adult. What? TV? Totally. How many of us get home from work? We're exhausted. Go flick on the TV. Fall out, you know, maybe grab a beer. Plunk down on the couch, and you're gone. Maybe that's an idol. Yikes, eh? You know, TV, I'm not saying these things are bad, but is it the first thing we turn to? Uh, that, that, that one's hitting me this week, yeah. Um, 19 verse 12 um, gives us a definition of profaning God's name. It's don't swear falsely by his name. So like in, in a court context, if you swear on the Bible or the name of God and you lie, that's profaning his name. Okay? That's one of the like, big ten commandments. Um, in the Orthodox Jewish world today, simply pronouncing the name of God is understood as profaning his name. And based on this verse, I would disagree with that. I think the definition of profaning his name, it's not pronouncing his name, it's pronouncing it in a, in a false way. Uh, 19 verse 14 says, don't trip up blind people and don't cuss the deaf because they can't hear you. <laughs> what I get out of that is like respect people with disabilities. Um, I have an example of that in, in, my, in my family life. Like my grandfather, my dieta, he's from like a, a non-practicing Ukrainian Jewish family. And um, I, I really love him. He's 85. He's relatively hard of hearing. Um, that's what you get for like not wearing hearing protection on some of those early tractors from the 40s and 50s. And uh, also what you get for having a softball slammed into the side of your head in a softball game when you're young. Um, so, you know, he wears a hearing aid and sometimes it squeaks and chirps and it can be kind of fun. But I, I've noticed that sometimes in a family conversation, like it'll be hard for him to follow. Maybe one, one way of applying that is just if there's someone in the room who's having a hard time hearing, um, don't chatter unnecessarily. Talk loud and clear so that person can hear. Maybe that's an application. Something I also have noticed is sometimes he'll misunderstand something we say. And so he'll reply like on a totally different page. And sometimes it's actually a little funny. But sometimes I almost feel like we could be in danger of making fun of him. And that would be cursing the deaf, in some, in, or in, mocking the deaf to some degree, hey? So that's an example in my life that I've, I've been a little bit convicted about. Yeah, um, along those lines, in, uh, in uh, 1932, it, uh, it says this, Leviticus 19.32, uh, Rise up, like stand up before the gray-headed, and honor the aged, like the seniors, and revere your God, I am Yahweh. So that's, that's a big one that we don't practice in our culture. 
Um, in our culture, old people are not respected. You know, you kind of put them away in an old folks' home or whatever, and maybe you go see them uh, every couple months or whatever, assuming you even live in the same province as them. But, you know, in, in, a, in a Bible-based society, like, seniors deserve so much respect. You know, if someone has white hair, like, that person is very respectable. It's like, what does that mean on a literal level? Stand, stand up when, when they enter the room. I've tried to literally do that. It's challenging sometimes, but, you know, if a senior walks into the room, I try and stand up for that person. And I mean, you could follow the spirit of the law. You could have a bunch of conversations going and, you know, the grandpa walks in and everybody stands up and continues the conversations for a second and sits that down. That would be the letter of the law and you would be missing the point. I think the point there is like, um, I, I, I wrote out some, kind of broke it down for us here. I think it means like recognize them, like welcome them, give them your attention, honor their presence. So, you know, when an older person comes into the room, just stop your conversation and look at that person and welcome them, honor them, say hi. And, 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 and make them feel important. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I would say. You know, again, sometimes it's a little hard, but it's a good principle to follow. Okay, um, looks like we'll, we'll wrap up here. Mm. Okay, Here, here's one thing I'd like to hit for a second because it's important. In 1916, it says, don't go around like as a talebearer or a gossiper or a slanderer. And then right after that, it says, and don't like stand idle by, idly by when like the blood of someone is shed. And it, it combines these two things. And I think there's a reason like there's murder on a physical level and then there's murder on a personal level. And what I found in our, our cultural is like, of course, it's horrific to physically murder someone. But you know what? Very often we'll murder people with our words. Behind their backs, we'll backstab them. In our culture, we call that character assassination, right? And you know what? We do it. People talk, we'll talk badly about someone. We'll say negative stuff about them. Maybe it's even true. But you know what? It's like everybody has a place in the community. And when we, when we talk negatively about someone, when we tell stories about them, when we, when we smear them, when we gossip about them, we're murdering their place in the community. I'll give you an example. Like, um, I'll give you an example here. If I was like to all of a sudden pull out a big a blade, and I was going to come out, kind of come at Herb and like, I'm going to kill him. And like, if you can imagine like me just starting to plunge a knife into his chest over and over, and just like, would we all just stand there? Would we all just sit there and watch it happen and be like, oh yeah, well maybe Herb was a bad guy. Maybe he deserved that. Seriously, like, if, if you had a room full of men and a guy pulled out a blade and was going to kill someone, he would, they would tackle the guy and he'd be on the floor in a second, wouldn't he? It's like, we have no tolerance for that. But you know what? In our culture and in the body of Messiah, we will all sit there and listen to someone, like, engage in character assassination. And we all sit there and we watch that person's blood being shed. And it's wrong. So you know what God says? Don't talk badly about other people, especially believers. Don't, like, don't down-talk them or talk negatively about them, even if maybe it's true, or maybe if they really bug you. doesn't matter. And you know what the other end of that is? If someone's starting to, like, slam somebody or talk negatively about them, treat it like a potential murder incident, like someone just pulled out a blade and they're about to plunge it into someone's chest and stop that person. Just say, I, I, sorry, just no, no Lashon Haran, in Hebrew it's called, right? I don't want to hear it. I, just, I don't want to hear it. I don't care if it's true or not. I don't want to hear it, right? That's radical, but I challenge you to do that. Because generally, communities are destroyed from the inside out by people talking badly about others. That's how it happens. You know, if you were to do a case-by-case incident, almost every time a community is destroyed, it's by people who don't have a code of honor and who bad talk other people. 
right? So I have a code of honor. I respect each of you. It doesn't matter if you bug me. It doesn't matter if I agree with you. It doesn't matter if there are things in your life that I think are maybe, you know, flawed. I love you. I see Yeshua in you and you're in Yeshua. You're righteous before God and I will honor you. I will not talk badly about you, especially behind your back. If I have a problem with you, I will go to you privately. I'll try and work it out because I love you and I want to be right with you and I can't be a fake. I just can't. I can't put on a nice face when I hate your guts. And um, you know what? If it's like really, if it's a really bad problem, I'll bring, I'll involve another couple people, and we'll we'll work through it together, with the intent of restoration, not with the intent of taking it out, it out back with witnesses, right? <laughs> so, let's just finish on that point. Hey, nice happy point. Actually, here we'll finish on this point. God said at the end of this parsha, "Do all this stuff because you're special to me." That's what the word holy means. And this, it's like special. You know what? You're special to me. That's why I'm giving you this stuff, right? You're special, so act special. So let's leave it at that. <laughs> Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.